You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. This morning's text is from James, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we come to you this morning with heavy hearts. We need you. We need you to speak to us through your word, to bring comfort and clarity in the midst of circumstances that don't make sense. So God, we pray that you would work by your spirit and through your word in each of us this morning for your glory and for our ever-increasing joy in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. As you all know by now, this has been an unusually difficult week. It's always hard to lose someone you love, but this week, Redeemer has lost two dear church members. Both Mary McDermott and Jocelyn Pagano went to be with Jesus this week, Mary on Tuesday, and and Jocelyn just yesterday. There's much about Jocelyn and Mary that was very different. Mary was 66 years old, and Jocelyn was just 40. Mary was baptized and joined Redeemer just about a year ago. While Jocelyn was faithful to this church over a long period of time, serving this faith family in several different ways. Jocelyn and Mary didn't share the same life experiences and their family situations were quite different. But amidst all these differences... There was something they shared in common. They both belonged to Jesus. 
And because they had been purchased by the blood of Jesus, when their darkest days arrived, they both suffered with joy. This morning, I want to walk through a text of Scripture, a text we studied almost two years ago. But we're going to revisit it this morning because it will help us understand how our dear sisters were able to suffer with joy. But it will also instruct us. It will prepare each of us to suffer as Mary and Jocelyn did with unshakable hope and joy. It wasn't that many months ago that neither Jocelyn nor Mary had any idea what was ahead of them. Friends, that's the reality of this life. We don't know either. So let's go to the Word of God in light of what has taken place and both commend our sisters, understanding what it was that gave them hope. But in all of this, we will primarily be honoring God. We'll be honoring God for His good work in Mary and Jocelyn. He sustained both of them by His grace until their faith became sight. You heard Joanna read our text just a few minutes ago, but look with me now at verse 2. Notice first, friends, that God commands joy in suffering. God commands joy in suffering. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James begins with what sounds like an outrageous command. Count it all joy, or as the NIV translates it, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of various kinds. This is one of those moments when you're reading Scripture, especially when you're face-to-face with an unexpected trial that the instruction of God's Word can seem unrealistic or even disconnected from real experience. But friends, nothing could be further from the truth. So let's step back and take a careful look at the text. We need to realize exactly what our text has in view here. What are these trials of many kinds? Well, remember the immediate audience, verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This is a reference to believers scattered out into various places, all awaiting the day when they will be regathered, ultimately in their heavenly home. This is similar to what we find at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1, to God's elect. Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Friends, James is writing to people like us. 
Those who have been rescued from their sin by the bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, drawn by faith to repent and believe the gospel, though we're citizens of heaven, we now wait, longing for the return of our King, that time when we will be gathered into his presence. But while we wait, we raise families, we work jobs, we enjoy God's created world, we eat and drink and laugh, but we also experience pain and hurt and loss. We suffer and face trials of many kinds, don't we? We know the reality of this verse all too well this morning especially for the families and close friends of both Mary and Jocelyn. You've been riding an emotional roller coaster, wrestling with heart-wrenching suffering and now the loss of someone you love. But then you're also rejoicing that they are now with Jesus. At different times, in the midst of trials, we've all asked why. Why is this happening? What is God doing? I'm so glad that during exceedingly emotional times, God's word pushes us beyond our complicated feelings. Notice the first three words of verse 3. For you know. Brothers and sisters, when facing trials, we can easily become consumed by the immediate experience of confusion and an overwhelming sense of uncertainty. And hopelessness can begin to creep in. And I want to be clear, I'm not, I'm not condemning you for your confusion and uncertainty. And I'm not attacking you for asking why. But I do want to lovingly remind you of something you know. Something you know that transcends what you feel. Here is what we all know, brothers and sisters, but we easily forget. God is absolutely sovereign. And he is unfailingly good. Yes, God is in control of all things, in, including every trial you and your loved ones face, but he is also good. So we see here in our text that God has a sovereign plan, but it includes a sovereign process. And this sovereign plan can't be disconnected from the goodness of God. So the sovereign plan is a good plan, and the sovereign process is a good plan process. And here's what we see in the text. God ordains trials. Trials test your faith. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. And finally, perseverance blossoms into maturity. And notice that it's not trials that produce maturity. It's 
perseverance in the trials. One theologian explains, James reminds his readers that God brings difficulties into their lives for a purpose. And that this purpose can be accomplished only if they respond in the right way to their problems. Implicit in what James says, listen, implicit in what James says is a conviction that the suffering of believers is always under the providential control of a God who wants only what is best for his people. Now here's where I think we can get off track. If God is sovereign, and he is, and in control of all things, then why doesn't he just prevent trials? Why doesn't he just prevent suffering from ever entering into the lives of his children? Why can't that be part of being a Christian? Instead of suffering being guaranteed, why isn't suffering abolished? Well, first, friends, let me be quick to say that a day is coming when suffering will be abolished. This is where everything is headed. No more pain. No more tears. No more suffering. As Tim Keller, taking a cue from Tolkien, likes to say, Everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. If God is sovereign and good, why is he waiting to make all things new? And why in the here and now does he ordain suffering? Well, I can't improve upon John Piper's answer to this question. Explaining the story of Lazarus in John 11 and dealing with the existence of and, and pain that illness brings, Piper rightly points out that Jesus was motivated by love when he allowed his friends to feel the deep pain of illness and then death. Much like we find in James, the text makes plain that God has a good purpose in our suffering, but we still wonder, don't we? We wonder, how can all of this be loving? Here's what Piper writes. So what is love? What does it mean to be loved by Jesus? Love means giving us what we need most. And what we need most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. And what is that? What will give you full and eternal joy? The answer is clear. A revelation to your soul of the glory of God, seeing, admiring, marveling, and savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ, Piper concludes, love, love is doing whatever you have to do 
to help people see and treasure the glory of God as their supreme joy. To help people see and be satisfied with the glory of God. Friends, suffering, suffering provides us with a unique opportunity for our white-knuckled grip to be loosened. And we begin to let go of the Jesus substitutes that we cling so tightly to. Right? We long for things like safety and security and ease and comfort, but these things lull us to sleep. Our faith becomes shallow and our appetite for Christ wanes. Suffering returns us to a place of desperation. Where we only have the promises of God. We are forced to move beyond our feelings to what we know. Suffering reminds us of what we already know and it's this Christ is enough Christ is enough and for those of you who visited with Mary and Jocelyn over the last few months or if you or you've spent time with the Polis and Pagano families you have seen this beautifully displayed, haven't you? Christ is enough. This was my overwhelming thought yesterday after we left the memorial service for Mary. We praise God for his grace in her life. We went over to the Polis house. And it was not a scene of people overcome with a hopeless kind of grief. Yes, there was deep sorrow, but there was laughter. And there was food and memories were being shared. And I walked away and thought, I, I'm not marveling at that family, though I am deeply challenged by them. I'm marveling at Christ. Christ was displayed. I walked away thinking Christ is enough. God commands joy in suffering, but when it comes, suffering reveals our lack of and tremendous need for divine wisdom. Suffering reveals our need for wisdom. This is verses 4 and 5. Look at them with me and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And notice the word that connects verses 4 and 5. It's the word lack or lacking. It, it shows up in both verses. God's desire is for his children to mature and grow, but we lack the necessary means in and of ourselves for that to happen. So God brings trials and suffering. 
which expose what we lack. But notice where this uncomfortable and difficult process of suffering and then coming to grips with what we lack. Notice where all of this is leading. Verse four. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what is it that James is highlighting here? What are we lacking? We're lacking wisdom. We're lacking wisdom. Wisdom in this context does not equate to mere knowledge or intelligence, but adds the practical element of living out what one believes. So think about this. In verse 3, James appeals to what we know. We know that God is sovereign and he is good. That he ordains trials and that he has a good purpose for them. We know this, friends. But what do we struggle to do? We struggle to live out what we believe. I know in my head that I have every reason for joy in my suffering, and yet I'm not joyful. I'm angry. I'm confused. I'm hurt. Brothers and sisters, according to God's word, what you and I need in those moments is divine wisdom. We need God's help to live out what we believe, to act according to what we know. Our great need in times of suffering and confusion is not more or better information, but we need God to intervene and bring spiritual transformation. This is the effect of divine wisdom. Look at the illustration in verse 6. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The one who recognizes he is lacking wisdom and in humility and faith asks God for it will experience divine strength and stability. But for the one who doubts God's purpose and plan, and even doubts God's character, well, he will be like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Now maybe you feel like all you're hearing at this point is a moralistic pep talk, where I'm pleading with you to muster up enough faith for God to be pleased enough with you that he will reward you with the gift of divine wisdom. And so you're thinking, uh, yes, Jason, I, I understand something is wrong. I know I'm doubting. I feel the crashing waves. Everything seems unstable and uncertain. Well, if that's you, let me draw your attention back to something we skipped right past. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Friend, could I remind you whom you are asking for wisdom? You are asking God. And what is God like? He's generous. He's generous. He gives to all, and he gives without hesitation or ridicule. You can hear the words of Jesus if you listen carefully from Matthew chapter 7, where he said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So here's the picture, brothers and sisters. You're in the middle of suffering. You're facing a significant trial and you're filled with doubt and uncertainty and you know in your head that God is sovereign and that he's good and you know he has a purpose in all of this but there remains this disconnect and you wonder, how do I behave? How do I behave according to what I believe? And there is this beautiful simplicity to the answer. Ask God. Ask God. Ask Him for wisdom. Cry out to Him in fractured faith. He will not hesitate and He will not mock you for your frailty and doubt. But like an infinitely loving and perfect Father, He will give you exactly what you need. Friends, both Mary and Jocelyn experienced this. As they suffered in ways they had never dreamed, they had to cry out to God in their weakness. And did God turn a deaf ear? Did he ridicule them for their weakness? No. No, he gave to them generously exactly what they needed. Now, perhaps you're wondering if I'm actually reading the text in front of us very carefully because it says that I can't have any doubt when I cry out to God for wisdom. Doesn't it? Oh, we need to understand that Jesus is addressing a very particular kind of doubt. He is not condemning the natural doubt of human weakness. Where a child of God is fighting for faith, wanting to embrace the promises of God, longing to find rest in the arms of Jesus. No, James describes the, the one here who is double-minded. 
That's the one God will not hear. This is what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that man cannot serve two masters. The one that God will not hear is the one who wants, listen, who wants deliverance from difficulty only to find satisfaction in something or someone other than God. I want your benefits, but I don't want you. For the one suffering who cries out to God, not for deliverance, but to find joy in God, in the midst of suffering, they will find it. And again, this explains what so many of you witnessed in Mary and Jocelyn. Clear evidence that God listened to their cries and he met them in their pain. God gives generously to those who ask in faith. We see this in the suffering of saints, but we see it most clearly in the gospel. Consider Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh, friends, when you are hurting and God feels cold and distant, run to the cross and behold God's generous love. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. If you want to know how generously God will give you his wisdom in your suffering, remember how generously he gave you his son in your sin. God commands joy in the midst of suffering. Suffering reveals our need for wisdom. And because wisdom and joy are connected, this is why we find what we do in verses 9 through 11. And this may sound strange, but stick with me. Wisdom is more valuable than money. Wisdom is more valuable than money and nothing exposes the reality of that statement more than suffering. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Remember again what Jesus said about the double-minded man 
the way he expressed it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now, it could be that James is introducing a new topic here, beginning in verse 9, but you already know that I don't think that's the case. I, I think this is connected to what has come before. Here's, here's what I mean. Suffering, suffering reveals what we really believe. Suffering reveals what we really believe. This is why James appeals to what we know. When trials come, brothers and sisters, you will find out if you believe in the sovereignty, goodness, and generosity of God. Your difficulty will either drive you to your knees in total dependence upon God, or you will be driven away, and you will look for comfort and hope in something or someone other than God. Here's what we find in verses 9 through 11. James encourages the lowly brother or the brother of humble circumstances to boast in his exaltation and the rich person to boast in his humiliation. Friends, this is gospel language. James is pointing the poor man past his lack of money and he is pointing the rich man past his abundance of money saying to both of them, there is something better than money. We find here another echo of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he commanded, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Friend, whether you are materially rich or poor, it does not matter. James reminds us that both the rich and the poor will suffer. And they will die. And verse 10, there is no amount of money that will allow you to cheat death. You will not reach the end and be given the option to buy just a few more days. No, just like a flower, the rich man and all his money will pass away. As the rich man works hard, is the description here, as the rich man works hard to get more and more, trying to earn just a little bit more, he will fade away. He will fade away. The language here is startling. Earthly wealth does not ensure a lasting legacy. If you spend your life trying to accumulate more and more, desperately wanting to make sure you are never forgotten, you will become nothing more than a footnote in history. You will fade away while you go about your business.
So if you shouldn't boast in all the stuff you've accumulated, then what should you boast in? What really matters in the end? Well, it's exactly what gives a person hope and joy in the midst of trials. In fact, while we typically think of boasting as a form of sinful pride, the answer to our question is found in that word in verse 9, the word boast. It, It carries this idea, rejoicing in. And in this context, it specifically refers to rejoicing in Christ. In other words, friends, what truly matters in the end and what will sustain you in suffering is what sustained both Mary and Jocelyn. They were infinitely rich in Christ. And so death didn't take everything away from them. It ushered them into the fullness of everything they valued. This is the exalted position in verse 9. You are known and loved by God in Jesus Christ. You are clothed in his perfect righteousness. You are chosen, adopted, and redeemed. You are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. All of this means that we can summarize verses 9 through 11 like this. Jesus is better than money. And if you doubt that, watch someone who is rich but does not have Christ. Watch them suffer and compare it to what you see. When someone who has very little, by any earthly measurement, suffers, but they have Christ. When you face trials and suffering, do not let your heart wander. Don't believe that your greatest need is more or better stuff. You have Jesus Christ. Again, suffering reveals where we look for joy, satisfaction, and ultimately salvation. Money cannot alleviate suffering. Money won't last forever. Jesus is better than money. Jesus is the way to God. And Jesus will be with you in your suffering. He will never leave you. His spirit will comfort you. You will find joy in your pain when you remember that Jesus took your ultimate suffering when he was nailed to a cross and satisfied the Father's wrath for your sin. No amount of money could have purchased your eternal redemption. Only Jesus could do that. Money will pass away, but Jesus is the eternal king and his kingdom is forever. So then, what sustains us and what fills us with joy in the midst of trials of every kind? What was the source of Mary's and Jocelyn's hope and joy as they approached death? 
Is it that they had lots of money? Is that what sustained them? Is it that they were well known? Is that what gave them peace as they approached death? No. The source of our sisters' joy and peace as they suffered is made crystal clear in the words of a song we introduced just a week ago. In fact, I can almost hear both Mary and Jocelyn singing these words. I found a treasure that can't be taken. Found a well that won't run dry. A worldly pleasure be now forsaken. Behold what love, what life is mine. Could endless striving now make me righteous? Could all my works now grant me hope? Oh, hallelujah. The blood of Jesus, my only plea, my only boast. And in the trial, when storms are raging, though tears may fall, my soul will rise. For there's a peace that is mine unchanging. There is a joy that never dies. When life is passing and strength is fading, I'll see the one that I adore. Let this world vanish. Oh, give me Jesus, my great desire, my true reward. Christ is all. Christ is all. And my song will ever be Christ is all, all in all. Let's pray together.